Opportunity is ripe in the church for disunity. I mean, just think about it. We Christians who are formerly of the world learn to think like children of God. And we know what we, what we used to put our identity in, what we used to divide over in the world, race issues, cultural issues, socioeconomic positions, education, politics, money, and then there's just simply personal preference. And then on top of that, we're sinners. We don't think rightly about these things to begin with. We don't evaluate rightly. We still, in our sin, place our identity in all of those things mentioned above. Whether you be black, white, Hispanic, Asian, whether you used to do things in a certain way in your family or not, or if you are the so-called higher class or the lower class, or you have an education or you don't have an education, or you have money, you don't have money. There's a million things that we, we can and are still tempted to place our identity in. Everything becomes a hill to die on. Given that unity is so fragile, it makes us ask the question, how can we preserve unity in the church? How can we preserve unity in the church? Our passage today helps us with an answer. Thank God our passage helps us with an answer. How can we preserve unity in the church? We are to think Christianly. I don't even know if that's a word, but there it is. Think Christianly. Like last week, God's people are to think God's thoughts after Him. And in doing so, as we think Christianly, we work to preserve church unity as we live lives of worship to God. I invite you to turn with me to the book of Romans, chapter 12. And we are in verses 3 to 8. Romans, chapter 12, verses 3 to 8, page 948, if you're using one of those black Bibles right there in front of you. We continue our series through the book of Romans, and this was written by the Apostle Paul, written in the mid-50s AD, and he's writing to the church in Rome, most of whom he had not met, though we do know from the book of Acts that he did know a couple of them. He had met a couple of people from the church. And as an apostle, this man, Paul the Apostle, played a pivotal role in laying the foundation of the church, the foundation that we, in the 21st century here in Hacienda Heights, this church, First Baptist Church, is built upon. The Apostle Paul played such a great role. Here in this letter, he takes time to explain both the main building blocks of the gospel, that is, the good news of Jesus Christ. That's Romans chapters 1 to 11. But then he also explains many of the implications that flow from that gospel. And that's where we find ourselves today and last week, and we're going to find ourselves here all the way through chapter 15. This is Romans chapter 12 to 15, where he addresses implications that flow from the gospel. These are all implications for our lives here today. And naturally so, it is because belief always affects behavior. Belief always affects behavior. Creed always affects conduct. As R.C. Sproul's book is entitled, Ideas Have Consequences, or The Consequence of Ideas. Romans chapters 12 to 15, Paul addresses the conduct that befits you Christians... 
as you live as citizens of the kingdom of God. Or to use a family analogy, he just looks at the conduct that's befitting of a child of God. Key verses are found here in Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. Go ahead and look there. He says, I, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. Those verses actually undergird everything that he writes through basically chapter 15. And in these chapters, he builds on those verses. He speaks a ton about unity in the church. He speaks about what it looks like to love. He speaks about what it looks like to navigate some of the preferences and the weaknesses and the strengths that go on between individual members as we labor for unity of the people of God. So we ask the question, how do we preserve unity in the church as we give our lives to God? Here at First Baptist Church, we are to think Christianly. This brings us to point number one, think Christianly. It's right there in verse three. I'll go ahead and read actually 3 to verse 8. <clears throat> Look there, follow along, please. It says, Therefore, by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. So this thrust of the whole passage is found there in verse 3. Think Christianly. It says there, by the grace given to me, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. You hear the repetition of the word think there in the passage. It's actually really clear in our English Bibles. But in the Greek language of this passage, what is emphasized is not just one word, that is think. He's actually emphasizing categories of virtue. Think of himself more highly is an English translation of one Greek word. So he says there, don't think of yourselves more highly, right? Don't be proud. Don't be filled with hubris. That's a character fault or sin, the sin of pride. Instead of thinking of ourselves more highly than we ought, he says there, think with sober judgment. That too is a virtue, a translation, an English translation of one Greek word. So in all of this thinking, right, this encouragement to think, you see the connection to being renewed in the mind. It's according to the will of God, according to the word, and according to the spirit. We are to think God's thoughts after him. And our believing, you see there, what, what goes on in here and here in our whole entire selves, it's to spill out from our minds or our moral consciousness, and it's supposed to flow out into our actions. What comes out of our fingers actually starts everything in our souls. But here he says, don't be proud. Pride and judgmentalism was an issue between the Jews and the Gentiles in the book of Rome. We know that from Romans chapter 1, Romans chapter 2, Romans chapter 11. 
And the hostilities between these two groups go, went back a long time. So there were issues of self-righteousness. There were issues of discrimination, of judgmentalism, of lack of love and care and disregard simply for one another. And so, of course, you see the danger, right? These people, these Jews and these Gentiles, become Christians. And the danger is that they would continue to live lives of sin inside the church. We know what this looks like today. You guys know what this looks like today. Is it easy to let go of ethnic and cultural divides brought about by discrimination? It's not easy to let go of those things. Is it easy to let go of past hurts and sins committed against you? But thank God when we become Christians, He gives us a new heart. God writes the heavenly kingdom's charter on our hearts, the law of God, so much so that we actually want to obey God now. That's our new desires there that comes from regeneration, having the spirit dwelling inside of us, so that we who were formerly of the world, well, we begin to look back at some of those things that we committed against others, or even the things that were committed against us, and we reevaluate our sinful ways and our hurts in light of God's goodwill according to his word. We're children of God, not children of the world. We have the very Spirit of God dwelling inside of us. And so therefore our minds are no longer set on the flesh. We are freed from the tyranny and the power of sin. And we know we now are to be recalibrated to what God determines is good and acceptable and perfect, as it says in verse 2. But let's be real, there's a lot of baggage to work through, isn't there, for some of us, some of us more than others. There's a lot of reasons why we might think of ourselves more highly than we ought to, right? Think of pride or discrimination against others. And think back again to the Jew and Gentile. And we go back to them because I think it's important because we are just like them. We know exactly what it's like to be like them. The Jews and Gentiles had ethnic issues to divide over. They had morality issues to divide over. They had status issues to divide over. What do I mean by all of that? Well, they had ethnic issues, right? Jew and Gentile. The Jews, as we know from Romans chapter 2, they took pride in being the people of God. They took pride in their privilege. I mean, God had designed them that they would be a fantastic display of His glory to the ends of the earth. But instead, they used their position to justify their own pride. And so they began to look down on the Gentiles, the dirty sinners over there. And then, of course, the the, the Jews, they were living as the minority in the majority culture, the Greco-Roman culture. And the Jews, they set themselves apart looking down on the Gentiles. And, of course, the Gentiles are looking over there and saying, well, why are you separating from us? Why don't you just adapt your ways? And so you could tell that this pride just begets more pride. And if they're boasting and being of the people of God and you are not, well, that's that's status issue, isn't it? How do you become the people of God? Then you got morality issues, too. they got self-righteousness and they got those sinners over there. And then thinking very practically about our our day and age, right, there there are financial issues, right? So we, too, not only know ethnic issues, morality issues, status issues, we, too, know financial issues. Go back to the book of James. James warns that Christians are not to show partiality to the rich. They're not supposed to show greater attention to the rich over the poor. That stuff happens probably in here as well to our shame. And then, of course, there's a whole host of other identity issues. Think about 1 Corinthians, 
Right? They're tempted to find their identity in, I follow this guy, and I follow this guy. Not only that, though, but they're placing their identity in what they did for the church. Some of us know what that's like more than others here. I do for the church. I serve in various ways, whether I play music or I make the coffee or whether I preach. That's serious identity issues. And you see that, just such division in 1 Corinthians. They're even using their spiritual gifts to justify their own self-righteousness, it seems. And they're just like the Jews. Now, again, we are just like them. And if your sin, if our sin is not checked, friends, our body will be divided. What are some ways that we might think too highly of ourselves? Well, that's an easy one. Just think of everything we can take pride in. Just think of everything that you take pride in, race and ethnic issues. White supremacy, right? Think about in the world. There is white supremacy. There is black pride. I had friends that got tattoos, Asian pride all over their bodies. Brown pride. This kind of pride begets more pride. Victims even become victimizers, and the cycle just goes on. Of course, we lived of the world at one point in time. But if we continue to do that in the church, now being born of God, a citizen of God's kingdom, well, friends, our church is going to be divided. If we come in thinking brown pride, Asian pride, whatever have you, we will be divided if we find our identity in who we think we are. We look always at others who are are not, and so we reject them. And then move on. Let's think of a different category. You think about education, right? Some of you guys found your identity in your grades and your degrees, and maybe it wasn't even to to justify your own self-righteousness. Maybe it was just something that was beaten into you, and you just sort of more absorbed it. Now, you're still guilty in terms of finding your identity there in your grades or degrees, but nevertheless... We still tend to think of the haves and the haves not or earned and the earned not. And so therefore, just suddenly you think that guy over there who never graduated, you know, 12th grade or never graduated high school, he doesn't have. He doesn't have anything to offer to what I think is important. And then on the flip side, there might be those who who might not boast in what they achieved because they don't think that they achieved anything. And so they pity themselves. Friends, self-pity is is the same. It's it's a form of pride. You think about money. It's the same dynamic. Those who think highly of themselves because they have, and then those who think lowly of themselves because they think they never will. So we are to be careful to watch out for sin and to repent of sin and self-righteousness or finding our identity in other things, and we're to turn to God's word to see what God's desires are. And if not, you see how our church will be divided. The church will end up looking more like the world than the Lord we claim to love. And our corporate unity will be stifled if not killed. Corporate unity is fragile, isn't it? It's fragile. Thus, Paul urges the Roman Christians to love one another. As we see the next time we turn to the book of Romans, in our next passage, you see there, let love be genuine in in Romans chapter 12, 9. Elsewhere, we are told to make every effort to preserve unity in the Spirit through the bond of peace. And here, in Romans chapter 12, he says, this begins with mind renewal. Thinking in ways that pleases God. Not to think of ourselves more highly than we ought to think, but we are to think with sober judgment. 
But what's the key to this thinking with sober judgment here? It's an important question because, if you, because how you answer that is what we're going to do here to preserve church unity, right? This brings us to point number two. Point number two, think about what unites us, specifically faith. Point number two, think about what unites us, specifically our Christian faith. This basically is like an unpacking. Points numbers two and three are an unpacking of point number one, think Christianly. Well, how do we do that? First, think about what unites us, specifically our faith. Look there in verse three. He says there, don't think of ourselves, yourself, more highly than we ought to think, but think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Now, let me take some time to explain how I interpret this. There are a couple different ways uh, for how one can interpret this that makes sense of the actual grammar in the passage. The grammar of, look there, according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. So here are the two main options, two main options for how we can understand this. The first option, you look there, the words say, the measure of faith that God has assigned, that is about the amount of faith that God has given individuals. He sets apart, he apportions a certain amount of faith, and he gives that amount of faith to the individual. And effectively, Paul is saying, look, church, you guys, don't be proud and judge others because the amount of faith with which you use to serve the church and things like that is of the grace of God. The measure is of God, whether you be preaching or serving or and on and on and on, just the different gifts that are listed there. Option number two understands faith as the measure slash standard that God has given with which you, Christian, are to measure yourself by. He effectively says, think about yourselves with sober judgment according to the measure and standard God has given. That is... The Christian faith, that is the gospel. Don't be proud. Think of your ways always in ways that align with the Christian gospel, the truth of the gospel. Does that make sense? He's effectively saying there in option two, who can be proud over others when you need God's saving grace to enter into the church in the first place? This is the way that I understand the passage, and I found John Stott and Doug Moo uh, who make this, who take the, this position to be informative. Uh, if you like reading, you know, I can point you in different directions to, for you to figure out what view you take. In both views, though, let's be clear. In both views, what is common is that being a Christian and living the Christian life is made possible only by the grace of God alone. Think with sober judgment, he says, as I understand this passage, evaluating yourself in ways that aligns with the truth of the gospel. It's interesting. You see where he's directing our hearts, don't you? In our worldliness, we tend to think about what divides us. We who are in the flesh, or sorry, who were in the flesh but no longer, we tend to think about what divides us still. We tend to think about the haves and the haves-nots. We tend to think about those who do and those who don't do or those who achieve and those who don't achieve. We tend to think about all the inequality. And so we compare and so we're jealous and so we struggle with the fear of man. We struggle with pride. We struggle with self-righteousness. We struggle with self-pity. But here he points us to equality of need. He points us to equality of need and who before? It's before God. Paul goes vertical on us. 
He could have remained horizontal, right? As an answer saying, okay, make sure everybody has an equal amount of money. Make sure everybody has an equal amount of education. But it doesn't say that. He doesn't go to that kind of equality, right? If the understanding I take is right, Paul helps us shift our focus and think with sober judgment because everyone is equally needy before God's eyes. He takes all the world's categories that we tend to compare ourselves to or, you know, we exercise jealousy over or, or you know, justify our existence of self-righteousness. He pushes all of those away. He says, friends, you see that you are equally in need of God's mercy. We're equally needy before God because of our sinfulness, our total inability to work and earn our way to God. The only reason we are in the domain of the kingdom of God It's because of our God-given faith in God the Savior. Again, we see here how the the gospel, God's grace in the gospel is a pride killer. It's something that we looked at for a number of sermons and devotionals, three times, two or three in a row, actually. What, What Christian, right, can be proud knowing the only way a sinner can be saved is by the sovereign mercies of God. That's why we're not to think too highly of ourselves. How do we do that before the sovereign God as we all stand awaiting our sentence of death. When sinners are at the foot of the cross, where God the Son came down to take on flesh, to die on the cross for all who would repent and believe, how was anyone proud of who they are or what they did? The only way we are is if we are the measure or standard God has given other men. Or if you are my standard that I'm supposed to judge myself by. But the standard, if this interpretation is correct, is God's grace in the gospel. If you're visiting with us and you know yourself not to be a Christian, I hope you see that entry into the family of God. I'm not talking about just attendance of church. I'm talking about entry into the family of God, church membership. Church membership, by the way, is just a reflection of, of being part of the invisible church of God. It's the invisible church made visible here locally. If you want to have another conversation about that, we can later on. But I hope you see that entry into the family of God is all by His grace. Riches does not impress God. Your earthly status does not impress God. Your leadership role in your company does not impress God one bit. Your intellect does not impress God. Of course it wouldn't. God doesn't desire people to boast in what he himself provides. That's like a child who takes all of the benefits of having good and faithful parents that are really supportive in all the things that the child does, giving them their very own resources. And then let's say when in his, in his fame, some newscaster comes and asks him, so, so how did you get to where you are? And he says, I'm just a self-made man. I'm just a self-made woman. That kind of person who pays no mind to their parents and the gifts that have come through the parents, that person actually dishonors and disrespects the parents. There's no acknowledgement. There's no honor. There's no thanksgiving. Friends, the Bible says that that's actually every human being in their sin. We all have committed the same sin against God by rejecting God. We didn't honor him or give thanks to him. Instead, we worshiped and served ourselves. The Bible says that that is sin. The Bible says that that's actually rebellion. It's treason. 
as we want to be our own authority. We want to be our own gods. That is hubris for you. It's almost as if once we are old enough to walk, so to speak, we don't walk after God. Instead, we walk after our own ways to make our own so-called kingdom. The Bible says, actually, we do that from birth, and that is sin. And the Bible says, and Romans says, that, that, that God will judge us for that sin, even judgment in hell, because this is nothing less than treason. Now, while parents care about what you might achieve or what title is on your desk or on your business card, while the world might care about the beauty that fades, or while the world might find prestige in this degree and that degree, God cares that you get right with Him. And praise God, it is that simple. Because you could be a child and get right with God. You could be an adult and get right with God, but at least you don't have to spend your whole entire lives wondering, how am I going to get this validation from the world? You get validation from God if you repent of your sins and believe. He says those who do, those who cast themselves at the foot of God, the feet of God, he gives the right to become children of God. He sees our problem, so he gives us the solution of Jesus Christ who came to die on the cross bearing the punishment that his people deserved. The punishment for all who repent and believe. And if you repent of your sins and believe, well, you receive forgiveness not judgment. You receive welcoming into his family, the very blessings of the king, where you stand right before God, justified. So let me encourage you, friend, if you're looking for some sort of validation, some sort of purpose in your life, friends, the purpose is to get right with God. That's the whole summary of the Bible there. And God helps us by giving us Jesus Christ so that we might turn, look, and believe. Application for Christians, we are reminded here to always think of ourselves in relation to God's grace in the gospel, aren't we? We are reminded to always think of ourselves in relation to God's grace in the gospel, that great pride killer, that great equalizer, where the richest in the world is just as needy as the poorest in the world. The one with the gold-plated resume is just as needy as the one who's embarrassed about hers. We get a beautiful picture, don't we, about what the church could be here at First Baptist Church with faith in Jesus Christ as the great standard, that great equalizer of men and women. The church is God's project to display his glories of the glories of Jesus Christ to the watching world as different peoples here in our very congregation, as different kinds of people from different ethnic backgrounds, different cultural backgrounds, gather around the one Lord Jesus Christ and Him crucified, where every possible division and every opportunity for division can be bridged by the gospel and love that flows from it. I mean, for me, I began to experience this when I went to a church in Washington, D.C. And I had serious baggage. I had baggage when it came to ethnic issues. For the first time, I was part of a majority culture church. And I'll be honest, it felt so incredibly awkward. So it was so different than the Asian immigrant communities that I grew up in. And frankly, I had baggage towards whites. I had baggage first because I was, I was picked on regularly at school for being Asian in the majority white culture town that I grew up in. 
I had baggage as well because I had been falsely arrested on trumped-up charges by, from what I remember, white police officers who seemed, at least in my estimation, to want to harass certain Asians. I think I've been pulled over probably 30-plus times. That would probably be on the safe side. 50 times would probably be on the high side. And so I'm in D.C. all of a sudden. I leave you know, Southern California. I go to Washington, D.C., and I become friends with white people, specifically white Christians. I mean, this was new at 25 years old. And by the way, you know, when I talk about that baggage that I had growing up being picked on, what happened, at least in my own heart, and I think in other, my other friends' hearts, is we, we, we had to make a decision, right? We either get picked on if we're going to be associating with uh, some of these folks. Definitely not all are like, are exemplify their sins in that particular way. But I found that the immigrants have to make a choice at a certain age if they are experiencing this kind of, these issues. And so what happened to me is I turned towards the other immigrants, in the, in, immigrant uh, children who were in that part of the school, in the school. And so I grew up with not only, you know, Asians or Chinese folks, I grew up with Filipinos. I grew up with, uh, you know, Hispanic folks. Indians were part of our group. Pakistanis were part of our group. It was kind of like all of the immigrants because we were in a, a vast majority white culture. We all sort of clumped together. And so it was very reactionary. And so now I'm actually stepping out of that experience into a white culture and becoming friends with white Christians. I had fears concerning education issues, right? So not only did I have ethnic issues, I had education issues and really fear of man issues. Washington, D.C., from what I remember, was the highest Ph.D. per capita rate in the nation at the time. In other words, if we were to take all the people in Washington, D.C., they were the, all those people in Washington, D.C. had the most Ph.D.s, right, percentage-wise, compared to every other city in, the, in uh, America. But for me, there was a time when I wondered if I would graduate high school, and then I got kicked out of my, the first university I attended for getting a 1.2 grade average. 1.6 if you, if you count the classes that did not count toward my major. Mind you, 1.6. <laughs> and then the most fundamental issue was that I was a sinner. Let me be clear. That's the most fundamental issue. I was the one who wrongly put my ultimate identity in my ethnicity. I was the one who feared man because I didn't have the gold-plated resume and education experience. I thought others would judge me in the church. I entered into the church doors thinking other people were going to judge me. How judgmental is that? I thought they would judge me for the very same reasons I judged myself. You see, that's the ultimate problem. I was a sinner. But friends, while there, I began to experience genuine fellowship with people of all kinds of backgrounds. I had fellowship with Cambridge University PhDs who taught there. And I didn't even know how to write a paper. The first paper I submitted wasn't even spell-checked because I didn't care. I had fellowship with White House lawyers who wrote bills for the country and the president. I had fellowship with generals in the Marines, lunch at a house of a general in the Air Force, and I probably couldn't even name the branches of government at 25 years old. But they didn't seem to care. They didn't care about the haves and the have-nots. When it came to my closest relationships there, I was entirely convinced that they cared for me because they were aware that we needed God's saving grace together. 
I was entirely convinced that they had my best interests in mind because of the gospel. And so they gave of themselves to me, forging unity where the world insists on division. And what was it that unites us all together as one? What is that one thing? It is that great equalizer, that great unifier of peoples. It is the grace of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. Friends, I pray that First Baptist Church comes to display more and more clearly the beauties of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We have a fantastic opportunity. Hacienda Heights is a relatively, relatively speaking, multi-ethnic, multicultural area. That's why I wanted to uh, originally be in this area to do ministry. It's an area that varies when it comes to people and money and wealth and things like that. So you just go up the hill and you got, you know, houses, mansions that are 5,000 square feet. And then I'm sure somewhere here down in this area, there's probably, you know, 15 people packed in a one bedroom or a two bedroom just trying to survive. It's also diverse in age. According to the demographic study that I did when I, in 2011, 2012, when, I, when we first came here, uh, the teens made up the largest group here in a three-mile radius of this building. But that is out there, right, in Hacienda Heights in general. Here in the pews, like all of us together, right now we have the opportunity to make sure that the gospel and gospel love bridges divides that are present and every single potential divide that could happen if we live in sin. And we do this to forge unity. We have the opportunity, again, to display the glories of the gospel, the power of Jesus Christ to unite all peoples together. Now, I'm guessing you know that. I'm guessing you know that. I'm guessing you wholeheartedly affirm that, one would hope. But we should ask, does what you believe actually make it out or make its way into your behavior? Does what you believe make its way out into your behavior, all the way out into your fingertips, through your fingertips, into your actions? Is the gospel that great unifier in your fellowship with others here in this place? You should be thinking back to the uh, social interactions you have in the church here as you evaluate this. Based on who your friends are, does does the gospel only seem to unite Korean people, Mexicans, college educated, the 25 to 35 year olds, or the parents with four children who drive minivans? If you find that you only fellowship with people who look like you, who only have the same interests as you, who only eat the same foods as you, who are only the same age of you, I think that there are possible divisions that could be bridged by the gospel so that other people, in other members of the church are loved and that the beauties of the gospel, the beauties of Jesus Christ are magnified. Let me encourage you with a few practical things to do and we can all pray that God would bear fruit here. Let me encourage us here. Number one, get to know people who are different than you. Get to know people who are different than you. Hopefully as you get to know them, You enter into their lives for their benefit. Hopefully, too, you'll grow in awareness of who your fellow brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ really are, what their struggles are, what their backgrounds are, what baggage they come into the church having. Second thing, strive to be aware. Though we are a multi-ethnic congregation to some degree, which I love, 
there are still minorities here. And in all sorts of different categories, whether it might be based on ethnicity or age or any number of things, singleness, you know, we just go on and on and on with all the different areas in which we might create you know, minorities or majorities. So whether we define minorities as senior members, non-dating folks, or parents, or the children, let's strive for unity across all of these potential boundaries. But it takes awareness. It takes awareness to be able to minister to other people better. Third thing, go ahead and have what you might think are awkward conversations. Go ahead and have what you might think are awkward conversations. So you can say, what is it like being Korean in this congregation? What is it like being white, bald, and with a mustache in this congregation? What does it look like to be single in the congregation when you see that people are getting married and having children in this congregation? What does it look like when it appears like there are people who experience privilege, at least in your own understanding, when you never have experienced privilege? Friends, go ahead and have what might think are awkward conversations in love. In love. I mean, some of, those, some of those things that I brought up are going to be really hard to ask and damaging to ask if you ask without love. But it requires knowledge, it requires awareness, and it requires you to know what people are feeling and then to go ahead and ask the question. And friends, if you are on the receiving end of these types of questions, let me encourage you to be open and gracious and just have this big category, too, of people being ignorant. It is okay to be ignorant. We all don't need the same amount of information all the time, and we all grow, right? We all grow in terms of our wisdom and understanding, and that's okay. We want to know that people can be ignorant, and so we ought to be open and gracious. So church members, let me encourage you to do what is uncomfortable. This is exactly what Jesus Christ did, didn't he? He reached out to those who are so other than he is in order that he might love them and see them safe in His steadfast love. Pray that the love of God would bridge gaps here in our own congregation in order to strengthen this body of Jesus Christ. We are one body. That's what we sung about. And on one hand, I love this song, Oh, How Good It Is. I mean, just go ahead and open that up. Open that up to Oh, How Good It Is in your bulletin right there. Oh, how good it is, it says, when the family of God dwells together in spirit, in faith, in unity, where the bonds of peace, of acceptance, and love are the fruit of his presence here among us. Just go ahead and skip down to the next verse there. Oh, how good it is on this journey we share to rejoice with the happy and weep with those who mourn. For the weak find strength and the afflicted find grace when we offer the blessing of belonging Oh, how good it is to embrace his command to prefer one another. Forgive as he forgives. When we live as one, we all share in the love of the Son with the Father and the Spirit. I love this because it's an aim. But I also love this because it is a rebuke to my sin. You realize that there are people in this congregation who might not necessarily believe that any of this is going on. So on one hand, I rejoice. Man, this is an awesome song. On the other hand, I think, This must be really hard for some people to sing. We offer the blessing of belonging. Now, I know that there are people who who delight in being included here. I also know people who find it really hard. 
So you got to think from their perspective, like when we offer the blessing of belonging, like that might be pretty hard for some. We weep with those who weep, yeah. I don't really find people asking me what my experience is. The weak find strength, presumably because other people are encouraging them. They might not necessarily find any encouragement, at least at this particular time. So when we sing this song, you got to be careful here. This is not just, yay, this is us. But we pray that this would, in fact, be us. I pray that this would be us. We are all members of one body. This brings us to point number three. We all are one body in Jesus Christ. This is really what anchors all of what he said in verse 3. And here the, this point is brought home through the analogy of the human body. Uh, look there, Romans chapter 12, verses 4 to 6. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. It's pretty straightforward, right? The physical body has many members and each fulfills its function. So there are many members in the body of Jesus Christ and each is to also fulfill its function. And I've, uh, you know, over the last couple of years getting injured with two shoulder surgeries, getting gout, gout arthritis in my big toe, I've really come to appreciate more so the body parts that I, that I took for granted. I mean, when my labrum was basically detaching from bone, um, I didn't really know what was going on, but I started experiencing all this pain in my shoulder, up my neck, my bones in my chest. My physical therapist said we're moving upwards because of overcompensation, right? I started appreciating, man, that little thing in there, that thing's really important. And I want to value that little thing in there. And I didn't before. This is what Paul is doing here. He's saying, look, everybody here is, is a member of the one body of Jesus Christ. We are members of one another, and we are supposed to appreciate one another better. We're supposed to grow in dependence upon one another. Not so we rejoice in unity and diversity for its own sake, but because of the gospel, for the sake of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is, after all, the head of this church, according to Ephesians chapter 4. Uh, also, in, that, in Ephesians chapter 4, it says this, We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head. Unto Christ, from whom the whole body joined and helped together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So this, this unity and diversity is made possible only by the gospel and is to be leaned into on account of the gospel. So that is key there. Unity and diversity for the gospel's sake, such that the church becomes a faithful display of the glory of God where the watching world outside looks in and sees the power of the gospel that reconciles us to each other, and most importantly, to God himself. Now with uh, this passage about being members of the body, right? something needs to be said of church membership in a longer way here. In our day and age, it's interesting that Paul, or we should know that Paul does not speak in categories of commitment to the church universal, or even to the church in China, like your responsibility, but to the church local. Of course, the local church, though, is an expression, once again, of the universal church in a particular location, in a particular time. So I just want to underscore that when God saves, He fully intends to save people into a church, into a body, right? Where we can fulfill the commands of God, where we can fulfill the one another's, like the love one another's, etc., where we can keep one another accountable, 
using our spiritual gifts, where one is shepherded by overseers and then the rest of the congregation, where each individual takes up their responsibility to play its part for the health of the whole. That's what he intends there, church membership. So let me encourage you, if you are not a member of church, friends, God wants you to join a church. If you want to have a longer conversation about that, you can talk to me at the back of the door as well as Jason. So for us to be a faithful display of God's glory in the church, everyone needs to be at his or her post, contributing just as God had planned. Look there at verses 6 to 8. This is his point here. 6 to 8. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Our Bibles here tell us what we are to do. He says, look at those gifts. He says, use them. Oh, eight paper on that one. He says there, let us use our gifts. The the gifts listed there um, are according to the grace given you, Christian. According to the grace given you. So God not only saves us by his grace, but thank God he gives us gifts so that we might serve the church family. Okay, now let's talk about spiritual gifts. Um, That is what these are. They are spiritual gifts, what they're called in 1 Corinthians. Uh, Parallel passages. You can look at 1 Corinthians 14. You can look at uh, Ephesians chapter 4. Now, when you read this list or the list in Ephesians or the list in 1 Corinthians, don't think that this is an exhaustive list, right? None of the lists in the Bible seem to be exhaustive. We know that because they actually differ from one another, though they do share similarities like the gift of teaching uh, and things like that. Here in Romans 12, there are seven gifts listed, but the emphasis is not on the gift itself. The emphasis is on on how we use them and how we serve the body. So first, he mentions prophecy. From 1 Corinthians, we know that prophecy during the time of the apostles, uh, uh, prophecies were words given by God to an individual that the individual might speak them for the strengthening of the church. We know from 1 Corinthians 14 as well that prophecies were not automatically authoritative. Like sometimes Paul writes, this is what you should do, and if you do it, it is sin. That's not the same with prophecies. Okay, so they were not automatically authoritative during the apostles' time even. But these prophecies needed to be weighed by others. They needed to be judged. We know that if someone was going to prophesy, according to 1 Corinthians they were to, or sorry, from Romans, we, that they were to do it in proportion to their faith. Similar language as Romans chapter 3, or sorry, 12, verse 3. They're supposed to do it in accordance with the gospel given. Second, uh, second gift there is service. This is the gift of faithful serving. Same root word as the word deacon who waits on tables or fulfills some sort of practical ministry. So just think of somebody who serves the church in any sort of capacity. Think they're teaching, right? Gift number three. This teaching here accords with the faith once delivered to the saints, a body of doctrine regarding Jesus Christ, his fulfillment of the scriptures, him getting up from the dead, him being crucified, etc. Fourth gift, you see their exhortation. Now there's some overlap over teaching, probably some overlap over prophecy in the time of the apostles. Here this exhortation takes on an exhortatory role or function where one calls people out of their spiritual slumber to live the Christian life. Fifth gift, you got one who contributes to the needs 
of people in the church, probably thinking of financial giving here, financial services, and they are to give with pure motives. And then six, you've got the one who leads. He's probably thinking of the elder or a church leader. He says there, let the person who leads lead with eagerness and diligence. Look there at the seventh gift. Here we got one who does acts of mercy, whether to the poor, the sick among the church. He says, let that person do that with cheerfulness. Again, this is not an exhaustive list, nor is the emphasis primarily on the manner of how the gift is carried out. The primary emphasis here is on on motivating us to using the gift that God has given for the upbuilding of the church. So friends, given that this gift comes from the grace of God, given that we find ourselves here today all by the grace of God in the people of God, there is no room for pride. In fact, thinking too highly of ourselves and want or wanting to identify ourselves with our works or some particular gift, that actually will bring about division. Here we are called to just use them for the benefit of the body. So, okay, application here. How do I know what gift I have then? How do I know what gift I have here? Here I think he's calling us just to general service in ways that God gives us opportunity. General service as we have opportunity. So encouragement I have is just simply get involved. Get involved. Serve where there is need and let the elders and those around you help steer you in a good direction. So, number one, serve where the church has, has need. Right? If you know that there is a need, well, let's step up. You could go to the deaconess of hospitality, that is Erica Vasquez, and say, hey, look, I want to serve. How can I serve? Because you know what? I oftentimes see only, or some people, let's say, cleaning up uh, on a Sunday evening service. So tonight, right, there's going to be people cleaning up, probably like one or two. But every time I look over there, it always seems to be the same two people who are spending themselves vacuuming, right? We have need. You might not know that we have need, but now I'm letting you know that we have need. So go to Erica and say, hey, you know what? I just want to serve the body. How can I get involved? And hopefully she'll put your name down and schedule you to just serve where there is need humbly for the benefit of the church. Another example I have of people who want to serve where there is need, you know, last month, I believe it was, we had a children's ministry training event, and a number of people showed up. Some of you who showed up didn't even have background in children's ministry, but yet you wanted to be there. And frankly, some of you guys were a little bit nervous, too. Like, uh, you, you wrote down, like, I have no experience in this stuff. That's awesome for us because then we can actually help you because we recognize that it's great for people to want to get involved, and now we can help steward the gifts that God has given you. It's a wonderful, fantastic thing for you to be turning up and trying to get involved. It's super encouraging. Second thing, let those around you steer you in a good direction. So as you serve, remember that gifts are given of Christ to build his body that is the church. So it is the church's responsibility to help steward our gifting. So it is awesome, it is wonderful to hear from you. I'm happy to do whatever, whatever you have need, wherever there is need. Put me anywhere, I will do anything. Because then the church can actually come alongside and help steward the gifts that you have again. As elders, we are trying to man the battleship as we just try and make it to the other side alive. And we need people to take up responsibility, whether in a formal position or the informal, and frankly, in my opinion, oftentimes more necessary responsibility of simply caring for one another here in the pews, loving your fellow church members. We need people who are ready and able to serve in whatever ways that they can 
in the most important ways of facilitating gospel growth here at First Baptist Church. So just simply get involved. Now, in my opinion, sometimes we look at this list of spiritual gifts and we always think formal ministry. But that actually, in my opinion, is, is not necessarily the case. If you turn over to, to first, sorry, first Thessalonians, turn on First Thessalonians. And here we have Paul encouraging people to just go about the ministry. And none of this is formal here. In 5.14, 5.14, right? This is how I think God equips the body in different ways, right? Are there formal positions? Yes, there are. People who are affirmed by the congregation. But I think he also does it in a whole lot of other informal ways. So 5.14, and we urge you, brothers, admonish the idol. So he sees, God knows that there are the idol. And so he gives admonishers who are bold and who live according to the gospel, who might be exhorting people to wake, wake others from the slumber of their spirituality. They are to admonish the idol. You see next that, that uh, Paul tells the church to encourage the faint-hearted. He sees the faint-hearted in the church, and he says, you, you guys, anybody, I want you to be encouragers, encouraging the, the faint-hearted over there. He sees the weak, and he gives those who help. He sees all, and he recognizes that we all need patience. So, friends, if you go back to Romans chapter 12, and you see this list here, he sees that people need to be built up through the word of God, and so he gives people to, people to speak. He sees people who need serving, and so he gives servers. He sees people who need to be built up in the word of God, the body of doctrine, and so he gives teachers. He sees those who slumber and struggle, and so he gives those who exhort He gives those who contribute. He gives those who lead. He gives those who exercise mercy. So friends, God sees our need. The question is, do we? And are we actually going to step up to see that the needs of the body are met through the exercise of just general categories of love and care? So to conclude, every member is to be at his post ministering to the body of Christ, thinking Christianly. Remembering that it is God's grace that brought us into the faith in the first place and by remembering that we are one body in Jesus Christ. Friends, unity is fragile. But let's be clear, in some ways, it will always be when sinners commit to living with one another, whether in marriage or in membership in a local church. But thank God that by His grace, He has made unity possible And the unity that will certainly be the case when Christ once and for all gathers all of his people together. So God gives us the grace to fight for that unity here and now so that Christ's glories will be displayed to the watching world. We are to fight and show as much as possible the power of the gospel, which is that great unifier. Friends, you realize that what I experienced at Capitol Hill, we can have others experienced too here in this church? Have people who bring such baggage into the local church, who are standoffish, who are sinful, can actually learn to have fellowship with one another and have relationships restored with people? They can be participating in the body of Christ together as one family and all the while boasting in the glories of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together.
Our Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you that you are at work in us, no matter how sinful we are, to bring the unity that you yourself already knows. We know, Lord, that you love the Son, and the Son loves the Father, and the Father loves the Spirit, and the Spirit loves the Son and the Father, and on and on and on. And Lord, we get to experience that same unity to some degree, to a great degree. Father, we pray that by your Spirit we would be growing more in this unity that is based in the grace of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray that you would continue to rebuke us in ways in which we put our identity in things that might divide We pray that you would rebuke us for ways in which we are not making the effort to establish unity. Lord, we ask that you would forge these relationships here, these precious relationships here, so much stronger in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray that the gospel love would be bridging all these divisions and potential divisions. Lord, we know that life is short. So, Lord, we pray that you would spur us on and wake us up from our own slumber that we might live more in the realities of the gospel. And Lord, we pray that our friends, our non-Christian friends who watch us in Hacienda Heights would know that we are so different because of the grace given us in Jesus Christ. We pray that you would do this to the praise of your glorious grace. In your name we pray, amen.